0: Uh, good morning, Chapel family. It's good to see you in the house of God, those in the room, but also online. We still have tons of people watching online. And so if you're online, thank you very much for joining us. If you've not, you know, liked our YouTube channel, subscribe to it. That helps get the word out, too. So make sure you do that at some point this week. It has been a busy week here of trying to fulfill our purpose as Chapel. Our purpose statement is honor God, make disciples, impact lives. It's that simple. Honor God, make disciples, impact lives. And last Sunday, we had Adopt-A-Block in West Florence. We just went, poured in to the Cypress Point neighborhood and community just loving on them and having a good time playing basketball, doing games, doing Kids Jam, which is a presentation of the gospel, and just having a great time there in the neighborhood. But it took a ton of great volunteers. And so there's a really strong team that leads kind of Adopt-A-Block, and that is Tasha Bird, Holly Moody, and Rose Michael. And so if you give them a big round of applause real quick. They spend hours preparing and getting ready for that. There's also tons of volunteers that stepped up to kind of fulfill those roles that are needed there, and so which is a huge thing. So we had that Sunday, and then Tuesday we started BBS, where this place was just overrun with kids. Pastor Brian said he walked in, there was kids in his office just hanging out like it was their office at one point in time. And so it was just a great week of kids, one, hearing the gospel, learning the gospel, and being pointed to Jesus. Their creator and their redeemer. And it was an amazing week. Uh, Madeline Lowry, this is kind of her first big push for VBS on her own. She did an incredible, incredible job. She had a great team. I didn't want to leave anybody out. Uh, Rachel Chapman was big in helping her. Nicole Higginbotham, Lisa Elkins, Caitlin Deal, Aisa Pickleton, and Priscilla Baskins were kind of her lead team helping get that together. And then many, many volunteers. So give them a big round of applause real quick. I believe we're in a fight not just for a generation, but for the gospel and the kingdom of heaven in the next generation. And I believe it's be more vitally important than ever to for all of us to step up and make sacrificial commitments and investments into the next generation. And all those volunteers did that this week. And so it's just a privilege and honor to to serve alongside of you in two weeks we start a new series called family f-a-m-i-l-i might show me i-l-i means i like you so hopefully you like your family in that context we're going to dig into marriage parenting even what it looks like to be a child or a teenager of god and honor your parents the correct way and dating so make sure you invite somebody here for that but we continue today still holy look at your neighbor say still holy we're still in Still Holy series, still and Still Holy series, part three. The first week we covered that God is still holy, holy, holy. That in the throne of heaven for all of eternity, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. God has not changed, he's still holy. Last week we talked about his main characteristic or attribute that holds everything else together is his holiness. That if you remove love from God's holiness, it becomes something totally different. If you remove his justice from his holiness, it becomes something totally different. And so we have to worship him for his holiness. And today we're going to talk about that God has made you holy so that you could live holy. And so it comes with standards. Standards are something that, you know, many of us don't like, but they are a normal part of our lives. When you drive down the street, there's a standard of which speeds you can go to or pass. When you get your driver's license, there's standards that must be met. At your job, there's certain standards that must be taken care of. I was in the Air Force. Everything was standards. In boot camp, there was a demerit if you had a little fuzzball on your t-shirt. If the beds weren't aligned properly, there was a demerit. There was a standard. I did telecommunications and satellite communications and Morse code. Learning Morse code, we'd have a 98% accuracy rate in Morse code. I mean, the standard was 98%. If you got 97%, you failed. There was a standard at play. There was physical standards, mental standards, all types of standards. Look at your name and say standards. Now, some people have higher standards than others. Like when we go out of town, I can go camp. My wife's idea of camping, camping is a Hilton. I can stay in any hotel with a bed and a shower. If it doesn't have four stars in front of it, she ain't sleeping there. There's standards when it comes to eating at restaurants. I can eat anywhere there is food. My precious wife, if it has not been visited by a chef from TV, she's probably not gonna go. And so there, a couple years ago, I, I love ethnic food. Like ethnic food is just, it touches my soul. I love soul food, I love southern food, but ethnic food, Thai food is like my favorite. And so a new Thai restaurant opened up in North Nashville, right by our church there in Nashville. Much of us went, and I had the best pad thai that ever touched my lips. I mean, this pad thai was spicy and sweet and amazing. They had this incredible Thai iced coffee, which is just a strong coffee with a bit of sweet. Like, I loved it. And I'm the type of person that if I love something, I want to share that experience with those I love. So I go home, I tell Toy, I said, babe, I have to take you to this Thai restaurant. Like, this, this is the best food I've ever eaten She says, okay, I'll go with you. So we pull up. Now, context. Anything under four stars, she ain't going to. This Thai restaurant is not a a restaurant built brand new for the purpose of letting you experience Thailand. It was an old Mrs. Winner's, which is kind of like a Popeye's chicken building, that all they did was slap some paint on the outside, put a Buddha statue at the door, and put some tablecloths over the tables and say, welcome to Thai Phuket. That's all they did. It's gutter. It's ghetto. It's probably nasty and disgusting. So we pull up. She said, "Uh uh." I said, "Baby, it's got the best pad thai in the world. Like the the iced coffee's amazing." She said, "Uh "No, I'm like just just try, baby. I know it don't look good on the outside, but it's not about the outside. It's about the inside. See, I'm not there for the experience." I'm not there to feel like I'm in Thailand. I'm not there to take selfies and post it on my social media. I am there for two reasons and two reasons alone. Pad Thai and an iced Thai coffee. That's it. I'm not there for any other purpose. So I talk her into getting out of the car and walking into the restaurant, and she walked looking at every step. She sits at the table. She wipes the table down, and she has this look like, I cannot believe you brought me here. I said, babe, it's not about the experience. I'm I'm not even here. I don't care what the health department's code or or score. If it's a 23, I'm eating here. (laughs) She's checking out everything. So I order my Pad Thai spicy, five on the spice level. Give it to me spicy, and an iced Thai coffee because I want the coffee. I want to eat my spicy pad thai and wash it down with liquid Holy Ghost. Like, that's my goal. So I order my food. They ask her what she wants. She says, I'm not going to eat. I'm like, what? Like, you're not, like, just eat something. Like, she refuses to eat. Because it doesn't meet her standards. And so I'm like, babe, so I'm mad. Like, I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. Like, I had this amazing experience. I can't share it with her. So now I have to find other people at work to share Tha, uh Phuket with because she's not going to go back. And so about two, three weeks pass by. I get in her car to either take it to the car wash or, or fill it up with gas. And I'm in a car and I, I smell a smell that's somewhat familiar yet unfamiliar. And I start sniffing. I'm like, "What is that?" Smell? So I pull over and I start looking around, and it smells something like South Asia food, but at the same time, a little spoiled. And so I find this to-go container from Thai Phuket. So I go home and I ask my wife. It's like, "Is there something you need to tell me?" It's like she's had an affair. Is there something you need to tell me? Is there something you would like to share? And she's like, no. I was like, well, have you been going to Thai Ket behind my back? She says, well, actually, yes, I have. But I didn't want you to know because I didn't want you to think that my standards had changed. So she had gone. I took her with me to Thai Ket, but she goes by herself with a taco plate because she don't want to eat on the inside of the building. Gets a taco plate, doesn't bring me any pad thai, spicy number five, and iced coffee. Her standards had changed. God's standards do not. God is not going to negotiate or accommodate his standards to our culture or to what makes us feel happy or feel better about ourselves. When you read the Bible, many people look at the law and they say the law. it's, It's not even the law. It's a standard of holiness that God has. Why? Because God is holy. And there's a separation between the holy and the unholy. And so the standard of holiness is so that we can see God face to face. If God is holy and we're unholy, something has to change. We either have to become holy to see him, or he's going to become unholy to dwell with us. And I promise you, God's not going to become unholy to dwell with us. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says this, Strive for peace with everyone. Strive. NIV says, "Make an effort to have peace with everyone, and for the holiness." Everybody say holiness. holiness, because without it, no one will see the Lord. I mean, you cannot see God without holiness. There's a standard that must be met to see God face to face. First Peter 1:14 through sixteen says, "As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance." But as he has called you as holy, you also be holy. But look at this phrase, in all your conduct, in your behavior, in your actions, be holy. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is a quote from Leviticus. And what that means is God has a standard that he wants us to meet that standard, not because he wants to punish us for not meeting it, because the reward for that standard is getting to see him face to face. If you're needing to see God move in your life, if you're needing to see God in your life, if you're needing a fresh revelation of God in your life, it happens through a standard of holiness. It removes all the junk out between you and him so you can see him clearly. And it's always been like that. Before the law in the Garden of, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, there was a standard that must be met to, to maintain and live in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. Then God delivers the, the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness in the promise and he gives them the law or gives them a standard of holiness. And there are three different types of, of laws within the, the law and one is a civil law. Civil law is just like how you interact with one another, how to love one another properly. There's a way to love each other. There was dietary law, meaning you couldn't eat shrimp or catfish or shellfish. You couldn't eat pork. There's no bunions in heaven. I don't know what to tell you. No more slaw dogs and ribs. But it was a way to show that there's a separation between what God desires and what man desires. The nutrition law, the dietary laws, many people question that, but I read a book years ago called The Brain Training Revolution, written by a bunch of Alzheimer's research professors and scientists. And they were trying to figure out what's the best way to protect the mind from Alzheimer's and dementia, and there was all these exercises, but they had the diet in there. The diet they found that's the best for your brain is the diet from Leviticus that God gave the Jews. So it's not like God was saying, I, I'm going to make this law because I don't want you eating a good old fish fry. I don't want you eating, but he's saying, no, this is the best diet for your healing in your body. The second law is the ceremonial laws. Those are the laws, in it's how you worship God. The priest had a certain protocol or standard before they could walk into God's presence. There were sacrifices that had to be made. There was washing and cleansing. There was a proper way to, to worship God. There's still a proper way to worship God. And the third part of the law was the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments and and all the things, the behavioral things God expects of us. And what he's saying is, there's a right way to love me. There's a right way to honor me. And this is the way it works. There was a standard. And for a couple thousand years, that standard was written down in the law. And then Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, no one could meet all the requirements of the law. No one could maintain every single Pay, part or, or piece of the Levitical law. No one could maintain it. They would try and fail and try and fail. And then Jesus shows up as God in the flesh. And you would think Jesus is, is the merciful or gracious one would say, okay, well, you don't need the law. Just, you know, just maintain, just love me. just Just love me. I'm mercy, I'm grace. No, no. Jesus takes the law and multiplies it like by five. Because the law only dealt with the outward behavior or actions, Jesus takes it deeper. He goes to the Sermon on the Mount, the very first real sermon he preached in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and he says things like this. He says, you've heard it said, many you have heard culture say that you shall not commit adultery. He says, but I say, if you even have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Then he's taking the law and taking it deeper to the heart level. Then he says things like, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. I say, turn the other cheek and not just curse your enemies, but love your enemies as yourself. He says things like, you've heard it said you should not commit murder. But I say, if you have anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. Jesus took the law and took it from an outward experience to an inward position, saying even, you may not commit murder, but if you hate somebody, you've already there. Meaning, if you may not have committed adultery, but if you've lusted against your wife with some other person, you've already committed adultery. Yeah, you may not have repaid them back for what they did to you, but you don't love your enemies. That's just as bad as cursing them. He takes it deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, no one can make this standard. At least I had a chance when it was an external law, I could at least fake it till I make it. But now, I can't even fake it. Because God knows what goes on on the inside of me. See, the standard hasn't changed. Regardless if you think, well, you know, when Jesus came, the law was done away with. The standard of God is still the same. God is holy. You cannot see him until you are holy holy their separation is what creates heaven and hell heaven is a place for the holy hell is a place for the unholy because god is not going to allow the unholy to inhabit holiness because it will destroy that which god has created perfectly and so the only way that we can see god is to become holy it's the only way is to become holy because the punishment for sin, because it creates unholiness, the punishment for sin, there is a punishment that requires a blood sacrifice to wash and cleanse that which has been made unholy. And Jesus paid the price and makes us holy. If you would, stand to your feet. I just want to read two quick verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Now, Paul's writing to Timothy as the, the preacher in Ephesus He says this, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That will preach in this day and age right now. Like he's saying, don't be ashamed of this holiness message, because he's getting the holiness in just a second. Do not be ashamed of what God has given you. Do not be ashamed of the gospel you believe. Do not be ashamed of the love that God has poured in your heart. Do not be ashamed of the worship that God requires. Do not be ashamed, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God who saved us. Everybody say saved us. He saved us, but and. And means and something else, and called us. Everybody say called called us. To a holy calling. He saved you unto holiness, and he's called you into holiness. He saved you into holiness. He's called you into holiness. You are not just saved to have the forgiveness of your sins. You're saved to be holy enough to see God face to face. He saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because that you were good enough, not because you did enough good stuff at school, not because you did a good, good enough stuff in, in life or, or good enough stuff in church, but because of his own purpose in grace, which he has given us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you that you are God who has a standard. And Father, even though we don't live up to the standard or we have not made the standard, and Father, we thank you that you made a way where there seemed to be no way. That Father, you have made us holy through your son Jesus. But, Father, you've called us into holiness. Father, I pray right now that you cleanse every mind, every heart, and every spirit in this room and online from the false teachings they've believed about holiness. And, Father, let holiness dwell in this place, Father, because we want to see you face to face. Father, we bless you. We thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. He has saved us and called us to a holy place calling he has saved us and he has called us to a holy calling i i retranslate that to god has made us holy in jesus so that we could live holy for jesus he has made us holy in jesus so that we could live holy for jesus he has made us holy you didn't make yourself holy He made you holy through the blood of Jesus. But then he expects you to live holy from that place of grace on forward. So what he's saying is there's a salvation and there's a calling. Or there's a gift and an application. The problem is we think salvation's for everybody. Being called to holiness, that's just for the preacher. Or we're all saved, we're all forgiven, but calling, callings, holiness, that's just for the UPC or, or the, those Pentecostals, or, or that's just for, you know, nuns and monks. No, no, no. The salvation and calling are linked together in the scripture. There's a gift of salvation and a calling or an application of holiness. And I believe what is happening in church world and culture as a whole is there's a hole between salvation and the calling. We're infatuated with the salvation of God making us holy or making us new, but none of us are walking in the and part of and being called unto holiness or living out that holiness that God has called us to. We see it in church room. We see preachers and pastors every week. I get an email from churchleaders.com. Every week there's a new moral failure in church world. Some pastor who starts thinking relevance is greater than holiness starts living too close to the world and they fall. And what happens is God is not receiving glory anymore. It's only getting accusation that he's no longer holy. See, there's a hole, and what happens is people get saved at the altar, they feel good, they get uh, forgiveness of sins, and they leave and never walk out their calling. They're satisfied with the moment, not the journey. There's a salvation, and salvation is like a gift. It's It's a gift you receive from God. Salvation, you cannot earn, he says, not by works, not anything you've done, but God has made you holy. He gives you a gift of holiness. Then he calls you to protect that gift, to cherish that gift, to worship it because of that gift, and live out the gift. The gift has a purpose, and the gift—the purpose of the gift is holiness. And so the question would be, what are you doing with the gift? Are you cherishing it? Or are you like one of the UPS drivers that carry I shouldn't have said UPS. Chris is in the room. FedEx drivers, bro. They get your gift. When they put it on the truck, you know what they do with it? Oh. Uh, Oh, that's too far to pick up. It's just easier to do it. And so what happens is, if you don't cherish the gift God has given you, you will drop it when it's inconvenient. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. He said, don't be ashamed of me or the gospel that I've preached. He said, because you've been saved and called into holy. When it's not comfortable or popular to be holy, you will drop the gift and you will cover that thing up. And when people leave on Sunday morning, you'll come back and you'll, you'll celebrate that gift. Look at me. And what happens is you don't value, you're not using the gift. Every gift God gives us has a purpose. And the gift of salvation is to live out the holiness so you can see God face to face. Agent Rogers said it this way: He says, I want to read: holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness holiness is not the way to Christ. That's how the Pharisees, that's how the law thinks. They think, well, if I can do good enough, if I can live good enough, if I can do the right things, if I can say the right things, if I can just not do the wrong things, then maybe I'll get to see God. That's legalism, that's Pharisees. i got to get cleaned up before I see Jesus. That if I can just, but we don't see that anywhere in Scripture. The woman caught in the act of adultery didn't get cleaned up before she met Jesus. She met Jesus, then she got cleaned up. See, what happens is when you think holiness is the way to Christ, you end up having this wrong idea of holiness. Where you hate holiness, you despise holiness, you think wrongly and negatively about holiness. Holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. He makes you holy so you can see God, so you can see God not just for being the lawmaker, but see God as Father. The best thing Jesus did with the gospel was he changed our viewpoint of God. And the reason he changed our viewpoint of God is because he made us holy enough that we could see God clearly for the first time. No longer is he this wrathful, vengeful, angry God. He's a father. Who loves me unconditionally. He's full of mercy and grace and hope and peace and joy, long suffering and patience. He's full of all these things. What's the difference? Jesus took away the unholiness where the wrath of God dwells. He removes that so now I can see Him not through a cloud of anger or through a cloud of sin. Now I can see Him through a pure lens for the first time. That is. Holiness that God makes us see, holiness is not a condition of salvation, it's the result and expectation of salvation. It's a gift from God because you cannot make yourself holy. You can do anything and everything, you can wash, you can shower all day, every day. You can say the right prayers. You can avoid the wrong conversations. You can avoid the wrong people. You can avoid all the wrong stuff. You can do all the right stuff. You can do as much. Even Paul said, I've done it all. I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. He fulfilled the law better than anybody else. You cannot make yourself holy. Nowhere in the Bible does a priest make something holy for the temple of God. When God touches something, When God sets something apart, when God consecrates it, God makes it holy. Only God can make something holy because it takes something holy to make something unholy, holy. You can't work yourself out of unholiness. You can't wash your way out of unholiness. You can't convince yourself out of unholiness. It takes something holy to touch you, to cleanse you. From the inside out, not just the surface level behavior, but where Jesus said, if your heart is angry, he has to touch the heart. If you have lust in your heart, he has to touch the heart. He has to go deeper because it takes something holy to make something unholy, holy. Billy Robertson and Nicole are in here. They own Midtown Butcher down in Seven Points, which is like the promised land of manhood. Yeah. You walk in, it is like the glory of God just falls They have ribeyes. they have elk, they have bison, they have venison, they have ostrich. I don't even know what ostrich, I didn't know you could eat ostrich. I ate it, because he was laying everything. And one of the things that is incredible, before he opened, he was trying, they're selling dry-aged steak. So if you've never had a dry-aged steak, it is amazing. And he was trying it out, and he tried out a a whole rib and he cut me off a piece, and I ate it. And I was like, this is incredible. What in the world do you do? It just looks like dirt all over it. He says, well, it's a process, Said so it has to process for like 28 to 30 days in this cooler. He says, but you can't just throw meat in a cooler and let it dry age. He said, it takes a dry age steak to dry age new steak. So he actually had to go to another butcher shop and buy dry age steak, bring it into his cooler, rub his cooler down with his old steak, all the rails, all the shelves, all the walls, rub it down with his old dry age steak, leave that steak in the cooler, put in the new fresh steak for 28 days, and that old dry-aged steak makes the new steak dry-aged. It took dry-aged steak to make steak become dry-aged. In the same way, we couldn't make ourselves holy. So God had to send Jesus who was holy into our world or into our lives like our cooler at the Midtown Butcher. Had to send him into our cooler. And Jesus has wiped himself and his blood all over everything in our lives. He just wiped it over every single part of our family, all over the world, all over every nation, all over everything. Everything points to the glory of God because Jesus touched everything on earth. And then he lived here for 33 years. What? It's not 30 days. It's 33 years. He lived here with us. Why? To make us holy enough to see God. God, you cannot make yourself holy. Jesus had to leave heaven and come to earth for one purpose and one purpose alone, to make you holy enough to see God. See, when you realize in the Old Testament, you could be forgiven of your sins. If you made a mistake, if you sinned against your neighbor, you sinned against a friend, you sinned against somebody, you could go and make restitution and then make a sacrifice to God at the temple and your sins would be forgiven. One day a year, they'd have the Day of Atonement. They'd make a sacrifice for all the sins of the nation. And on that day, all your sins would be forgiven. What that tells me, if my sins could be forgiven in the Old Testament, Jesus had to die for more than just the forgiveness of sins. Why would God waste his son's life on something that was already being accomplished according to the law? So the difference is the law dealt with the external but the gospel deals with the internal. See, God didn't want to just make us holy on the outside for one day a year, God wanted to transform us from the inside. He wanted to get to that heart level where that lust, that anger, that fear, all that stuff dwelt. He wanted to get there, take that out, and cleanse us on the inside and give us a new heart and a new spirit. Why? Because that new spirit is holy enough that the Holy Spirit can dwell on the inside of us so we can see God every single moment of our lives. See, the Old Testament cleans you up on the outside. The gospel cleans you up on the inside. It goes deeper. Second Corinthians 5, it says this. He says in 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What he's saying is you are not the unholy you anymore. You're now the holy you. You are not the old sinful you anymore. You are now cleansed on the inside. You have a new father. You are born again. Your new father's DNA is holy. You now have a spiritual inheritance because you have a new father. Everything according to the gospel is newness. And that newness is a purity and it's a holiness that God has given you as a gift. And we call that newness on the inside of you positional holiness. Regeneration is the theological term, meaning you've been regenerated, made new, you've been made holy. It's positional, meaning when God sees you, he sees you as holy. When God sees you, he doesn't see you for the old you. He sees you through the lens of Jesus and his holiness. When God sees you, he sees the purity that's on the inside of you. Even though people may see what's on the outside, God says on the inside, they're cleaned up enough, they're pure enough that my spirit, that used to only dwell in heaven, then only dwelt in a temple on earth, that had been cleansed and set up in certain ways, can now dwell on the inside of you. Do you realize that you are just as pure and clean and as holy as the inner sanctum of the temple, the Holy of Holies? Your spirit is the Holy of Holies of God. Not because you cleaned it, not because you you made enough room, but because Jesus' blood poured into your spirit and washed you enough to make you holy. Martin Luther, the old reformer, former, he called this the great exchange. A great exchange because Jesus has this gift of holiness or righteousness. And he promises to give us this gift, but he only gives us this gift in exchange for something in return. So Jesus gives us his holiness. And in exchange, we give him our sin, our shame, our guilt, our fear, our worry, our, our guilt, our, our wor- everything that we have that's despicable, our evilness, our hatred, our anger. He takes that with him to the cross. And we're left with everything Jesus had his holiness, his righteousness, his patience, his peace, his joy, his standing with the Father, everything, his inheritance, his promises, everything just he gives us. And we give him our junk in return. And in doing so, when God sees us, we are positionally holy, meaning he sees you as holy. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm made holy. He's made you Holy. He made you holy through Jesus, but he saved us into holiness, but he's also called us into holiness. So it's kind of a play on words that i made holy, but then he wants me to live holy. Well, why is that? Because before the gospel, you weren't made holy, so you could only attempt to be holy but always fail. But now that he's made you holy, you don't have to try to be holy. You just have to live out of what he's made you to be. It should be natural to live holy, not unnatural. I'm at a place, I would rather have a holy lifestyle with moments of unholiness than to be, live an unholy lifestyle with moments of holiness. And if we are honest, 95% of the church would just rather live an unholy lifestyle with a little sprinkling of holiness every now and then. And what that tells me is they've never understood who God has made them to be. You may be positionally holy, but God expects you to live holy. Why? Because God has given us through the gospel the ability and the responsibility to live holy lives. He's given you the ability. Everybody say ability. Ability. And the responsibility, say responsibility. responsibility, to live holy lives. He's given you the ability and the responsibility. He's given you the power, but also the calling. He's given you the gift, but he expects you to do something with the gift. So if the inner work, the God work, the gospel work is positional holiness, the internal work, this is the external. This is the outward. Meaning God does with the inside, we got to do something with the outward. And this is called practical holiness in theological words. It means the outward work. Practical holiness is when your outward behavior reflects your inward transformation. Practical holiness is when my outward behavior, my actions, my love, my behavior, my speech, my words, my decisions reflect what God has done on the inside of me. Paul called in Philippians, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning I'm working out my salvation from what Jesus did on the inside. I'm working that into my mind, my heart, my hands, my life, my relationships, my behavior. Meaning God does his work. He gives me the gift and he says, I expect you to do something with it. And the difference is that ability, that ability, it would be very, very negative. It would be very burdensome for God to call us into holiness without giving us the ability to be holy. It would almost be evil for him to watch us suffer and struggle and toil over and over to try to achieve something or, or be something that he knew was impossible for us to achieve. But he's given us the ability See, the woman caught in the act of adultery. She comes to Jesus, They throw her down to his feet. She's caught in the very act. She's guilty as charged. She's laying there in the dirt, crying as they're holding stones. Jesus doodles in the sand or the dirt, and one by one, the oldest to the youngest, they start dropping their stones and leaving. The woman looks up. He says, woman, where's your accusers? She says, I, I don't know. He said, neither do I condemn you. Then what did he say? He said, now go and sin no more. He didn't tell her to go and sin no more before she was called. It was after she received the mercy and grace of Jesus that he enabled her to live the life she could not live the day before. Why would Jesus tell her to go and sin no more if she didn't have the ability to sin no more? See, he saved her from the punishment of the law and then he called her unto holiness from that moment of grace and mercy. Practical holiness is when you realize what you've been saved from, you live away from it and you start pursuing it, God has called you to. Jerry Bridges said this way, but God has not called us to live like those around us. He has called us to be like himself. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character and nature of God. Meaning he's called you into holiness he saves you that he calls you to live in love like Jesus because now the Holy Spirit's on the inside of you to empower you to enable you to overcome temptation to overcome struggles to overcome weakness to overcome sin to overcome all those things why because now you have the ability but you also have the responsibility I think we do great with the ability I think we all celebrate the ability We just struggle with the responsibility. God, thank you for the gift. I just think I'm going to put it on the shelf for a little while. Well, God, thank you. I worship you for your grace. But I don't know about this holiness part. Because practical holiness, the theological term would be sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing work of looking more and more like Jesus. It's the ongoing work of, of dying to self, and living in and through Jesus. Sanctification is this process of letting go of the old you and picking up the new you. It's the ongoing process of conforming and living a holy life for God's glory. It's an outward work. But so many days, like, that, that's, that's our purpose, is to live holy lives for God, for his glory. But in our culture, in our day and age, there's so much humanism. The church used to be scared of secular humanism. Now it's just humanism. Humanism is where you become the center of all of God's plan and his will. Humanism is when everything's filtered through your experience and through your thinking and through what you think is right, what you think is wrong. It's very Garden of Eden-ish. And it's humanism that the way, and I've been guilty of this as well, infiltrating is, is what is my purpose? God's purpose for you. What has God called me to do? What is, and it's all about me, 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 me. And we get so entrapped by this we're so consumed by what God's purpose for me is that we never actually think what God's purpose is. And, and we'll sprinkle it up and make it real religious and, and holy sounding saying, well, you know, what's God's purpose for me? And we try to make it sound religious or Christian. So we, it's, it's selfish, but we'll sprinkle, but I'll do good for people. Or, or I'll do good, I'll serve people, but it's all about to make me feel better about myself. And you work through this humanism, but you're so consumed with trying to figure out God's plan for your life that you miss God's purpose for creation. And it's very simple. In 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 7, it says this. I love this scripture. It says this in verse 3. For this is the will of God. Everybody say, this is the will of God. Like, it doesn't get any more straightforward. You don't need the Bible for dummies for this. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, meaning your Becoming more holy. You practicing your holiness. That you abstain. So sanctification means you're not doing some things. You abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know that how to control his own body in holiness and holiness and in honor. Holiness and honor are always linked with God. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He's called us to holiness. God's will, the moment you get saved, is to live like you're saved. It is that simple. But in our humanism, everybody thinks they're safe from their wrong decisions. They're safe from no purpose. They're safe from, from you know failing. They're they're safe. It's all humanistic stuff. I, I'm safe from you know I messed up last week. I'm safe you know I, I went through a divorce. I, I'm not good at marriage. I, I'm safe from being a bad parent. I'm safe from failing a business. I'm safe financially because I went through bank. We're always safe from from all these things. But when in reality, you're not safe from making bad decisions. You're safe from being unholy. You're saved from being a rebellion against God to being a friend of God. You're saved from sin. You're saved from your old life. I was saved from addiction, sexual immorality. I was saved from generational curses. I was saved from depravity. I was saved from anger. I was saved from rebellion against God. I was saved from being an enemy of God. I know what I'm saved from. You know what that means? I'm not going back. See, I live... Like God saved me from my sin. I don't live like God just forgave me for messing up. I realize He saved me from sin to live holy, to reflect His image, to reflect His glory, and to honor Him for the salvation He's given me. Now I don't earn that salvation. I did nothing. God met me in the pit. But if you look at the history of the Bible, you look at the timeline of the Bible, God didn't give the Hebrews, he didn't give the Israelites the law while they were in Egypt. He didn't say, he didn't give, because that had been depressing. Could you imagine, God, they're already in slavery and bondage. Okay, now you need to do all these things too. No, he delivered them not by their own ability, not by their own efforts, not by their own good works, not by their own mental capacities, not by their skills, not by their giftedness, not by their purpose. He delivered them by his own power and by the blood of the lamb. And then he delivered them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and then he gave them the law. He gave them the law of holiness after he had delivered them and after they had the ability to live it out on their own own. In the same way, God doesn't give you the law first. He gives you the law after you get saved. Now you can live up to the standard of holiness. He's called you. It's just like marriage. Like when, when you get married, the Bible over and over again describes a relationship with Jesus as a marriage, a union, abiding in him, communion, being one with Christ, being in him and through him. It all I think it's over 200 times in the New Testament alone, it describes a relationship with Jesus as a marriage. And so when you're married, marriage is a gift. Like Toy is a gift to me and my family. She's the greatest gift God has ever given me. I love her dearly. She's my best friend. Like I cannot imagine doing life without Toy. Like my best friend. So the gift is marriage. Now what I do with that gift either honors her or dishonors her. There was vows that were made that I'm either going to uphold or cast away. If marriage is a gift, it's like she gives me herself, I give her myself. What I do with it either protects it or harms it. So there's places I will not go because I want to honor my marriage. There's people I will not talk to because I want to honor my marriage. There's things I do not say because I want to honor my marriage. There are things I have, I want to do that I don't do because I want to honor my marriage. There's things, there's laws, there's standards in place now, not in order to get married, but because I'm married, I want to honor that oneness we have with each other. We have tons of of standards have tons of, of communication points like she can go through my phone at any moment in time, she has access to every single password I have not because she's well, a little nitpicky not because she's nitpicky but because I want to honor the trust between us because I cherish this gift, I want to keep it as close as possible so many people in marriage though they get married, they get the gift after the wedding's over, they just Sometimes they throw it off. Friday night, I'm going to do what I want to do. Saturday night, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go to places that don't honor the gift. In the same way, when God gives you himself. See, salvation is not about getting a ticket to heaven. Salvation is about getting Jesus. You become one, married with Jesus. And it's like in this gift is a pure white wedding dress or pure white tuxedo for the guys. And he gives you this Be prepared to marry him at the wedding supper of the Lamb when he comes back. He says, I'm I'm, I'm giving you this clean, pure. You'll never see as something as white as the holiness I'm giving you. He says, All I'm asking you to do is to live according to what I've made you. Protect your dress. Don't wear your dress to places you shouldn't go. Don't wear your tuxedo, places you may get dirty. Protect it, value it. Because on the last day, when he comes back, he's gonna ask you to put on your wedding garment to welcome the king back home. So the question would be, if God has made you holy, he's given you a gift in order to live holy, what are you doing with the gift? Are you cherishing the gift that he's given you? Are you protecting the gift that he's given you? Are you valuing the gift he's given you? Are you applying the gift? Are you living out of this amazing gift? Are you living in a way that honors the king who gave you himself? Bow your heads and close your eyes just real quickly. You know, there's a lot of public things we do in church. We had public worship, public preaching. We had fellowship. We've hung out. We've drank coffee. This is one private moment between you and God. Next week, we're going to talk about how to to live out the holiness of God in detail. But today is just a moment of decision for you, for everybody in the room. What are you doing with the gift of holiness God has given you? If you could see you wearing a white dress for the ladies or you seeing a white tuxedo for the guys, is it getting tainted by the world? Is it getting blemished by sin? Is it getting overrun with temptation? Or are you protecting it and living in a way that honors the God who gave it to you? Have you thought about the will of God for your life is to live in a way that's holy, sanctified, and honoring Him for what He's given you. I believe God is calling the church back to holiness. He wants to see a bride that's without blemish, without spot, that's in a pure white dress, and you are that bride. And he's calling us up, as, as Pastor Brown said earlier, he's calling us up into holiness. He's calling us up into our identity in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ if you've confessed your sin, repented, and trusted in Jesus. But are you allowing him to call you up? Right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed. This is not a salvation moment. This is a, a thinking through my life moment in a recommitment moment to living out the holiness of God. Because the world is watching and the world is not just watching, the world is trying to pollute the holiness of God in your life. And he's calling you to step up, to step out and to be called into his holiness. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm gonna count down from three. When When I get to one, if you say, you know what, I'm making a commitment right now to step out of unholiness, to step out of some things I've been dealing with and stepping into the holiness of God. I value the gift of grace in my life and I want to live up to what God has given me. I just want you to stand up as a commitment to God, as a sacrifice of your pride and submission of your will to God's desire for your life. Three, the world is at war with holiness. Because that which is holy always shines light into that which is unholy. And the world is tired of seeing its evil and its sin exposed. So it's going to try to talk you out of your holiness into unholiness. Two, you were not redeemed or bought by saying a prayer, by raising your hand, by going to a Billy Graham crusade. You were redeemed and paid for by the blood of Jesus, which is holy, unblemished, and untainted and how you live shows how much you value the blood of Jesus. One, God is calling us out and up. Zero, that's you, stand on your feet all over the room. Anybody else? Don't be ashamed, this is a moment between you and God. God is calling us up and out. Father, in Jesus' name. I thank you for the boldness in this room. Father, I thank you for the gratitude for the blood of your son, Jesus, the gratitude for the grace. Father, we thank you that you've made us holy. We thank you that you've regenerated us. You've made us new. You've given us new DNA. You've given us, Father, you're now our father with a new spiritual inheritance and promises. Father, we also know that you've given us the ability and the responsibility to live lives that reflect who you are on this earth. Father, we want to live like you and love like you. We want to be set apart like you. And, Father, above all, we just want to honor the gift you've given us. So, Father, all across the room as they've stood, Father, I pray right now for supernatural power to overcome temptation. I pray for supernatural wisdom to see every single scheme of the enemy. But, Father, I pray they're, they're as innocent as doves as they walk out. Father, I pray for strength to rise up within them. Father, I pray they could see themselves the way that you see them, not as an old sinner saved by grace, but by a saint sanctified by the king, set apart, placed on holy ground, cleansed from the inside out, pure and blameless, unspotted, the bride awaiting the return of her groom and her king. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name and all God's people said